this idea of practice is a spiritual practice. And the first word that I was introduced and used with friends and fellow practitioners was sadhana. You know, what's your daily sadhana? That's a, a Sanskrit word. Sadhana is, it's akin to going straight to the bull. So you can see how this ritual or this daily practice, this daily routine is leading us somewhere. And so that's kind of why I share that with you. It's akin to, it's, it's leading straight to the goal. So sadhana, it translated for us, would be a spiritual practice. Mindfulness Outreach Initiative is a nonprofit insight meditation organization located in Omaha, Nebraska. We provide meditation instruction based on ethics, compassion, and wisdom, as well as social outreach programs based on transformation and healing. To join the MOI community or to practice generosity, please visit our website at mindfulnessoutreachinitiative.org. And we'll just take a few minutes just to arrive in the space together. We can begin to, to slow down and recognize where we are and who we're with by noticing the weight of our body on the cushion, on the chair, Noticing the temperature in the room, the movement in the room. And I invite you just to make space for all of it. Not pushing anything away. Not wanting things to be different than they are. Being curious. The practice of a sitting meditation is to do nothing, really. So perhaps taking comfort in knowing that you have arrived and there's nothing else to do but to be aware and take notice. The rituals of a meditation practice is often coming to note our breath. Deeper breaths can signal the arrival to a destination, a signal to our nervous system to slow down.
the longer we sit, our mind might begin to wonder what's next. Just paying attention to those thoughts. Drop a question while we sit for just a moment for you to ponder. What does your practice look like? And you can answer that by what your practice looks like lately. not thinking too hard, not including judgment. Just a reflection on what your practice has looked like lately. Thank you for that. Uh, tonight, I'm going to talk to you uh, about practice. And I wanted you to think about your practice. This kind of stemmed, I, I was going to talk about this a couple of months ago, and I, I just kept pushing it to the side. But it came to me um, out of an interaction with someone and the word ritual. The person poo-pooed ritual. And that's totally cool. But for me, it was like, are you poo-pooing ritual? And so that's what I love about this practice. And for those of you, we've got a wide range of practitioners here, people that have been practicing for years, people that are newer to the practice. And 
one of the things that many of you may have heard, you know, the Buddha wanted to have an end to suffering. And so I have deep, deep gratitude for the Buddha, this person over 2,500 years ago that social justice comes to mind, caring for people like, I, we are suffering. And he devoted his entire life to testing everything out. He was quite the scientist. You know, he did all the, he starved himself, he did, you know, looking for the end of suffering. So I have great, great gratitude when I think of the Buddha and what he has given to us. And one of the things that he said and why I'm drawn to this practice and drawn to Buddhism is because he said, just saying, look, figure it out for yourself, try it out for yourself, explore. And so that really fits my personality. And so when this practitioner, you know, somebody that I respect and I still respect, you know, sometimes I respect you more if you're like, you're full of it. I like that. But this person's like, oh, Rachel, just, you know, kind of prepared it and didn't discuss this. This is why. This is why ritual. But, you know, I'm also thinking there's always two sides to something. So there's this and there's that. And, and we learned that through discernment and through cultivating awareness and mindfulness and wisdom, we can make up our own minds about ritual. And so I began digging into ritual a little bit more. A ceremony consisting of a series of actions performed according to a prescribed order. So basically, a system of actions. What could be bad about that? Well, semantics and ritual and our own personal experience with ritual. A synonym for ritual could be ceremony. You know, we know the ceremonies of marriage, of death, of graduation, right? These important things that we highlight and that we come together. So there's this idea of of ritual and practice. And when I first started thinking about ritual, I thought of routine. You know, what's your, you know, we hear things like morning ritual. You know, we have our morning ritual, whether it's, I told, told you guys I was an open book before, you start with scraping your tongue and then you brush your teeth and then you shuffle to the allergy pill. These are things that are rote. I don't know if they're ritualistic if using the word, if that's the right usage of the word ritual. We let it pass, but that's, that's more of a routine. But I began thinking about this idea of ritual, and we'll get into why I have some specific examples of why we might be just mindful of ritual and how it can be unhelpful in our practice. But I also wanted to, because we have this wide range of practitioners, when I ask you what your practice is like, what comes to mind? And I'm thinking some of you might have thought of how long you're sitting. Did anybody think of minutes of like how long you're sitting? Did anybody have any judgment with their practice? Did anybody think of something beyond sitting? We have this practice and we have this language of 
practice off the mat, off the cushion, taking the sitting practice and bringing it into our daily lives, which if you stick around for a while, that's what happens. We're drawn to the cushion because somebody said, oh, it's good, it's calm. And then you get to tell your family or your phone, do not disturb me for the next, and you get to set the time. And then you're like, oh, this, this is great. Until a certain point, I think, where we want to begin to learn more about it. We come together in Sangha and we listen about the teachings of the Dharma from the Buddha. And then we're like, well, yeah, we sit, but then we do these other things like practice loving kindness. We might practice right speech. And we're not doing all these things. For newer people, we're not doing all these things all the time, all at once. Maybe there's some days where we're like, damn, I nailed that. I nailed this day in reflection, in our gratitude practice. But this is something that, it's something that we build upon. And the destination is sneaky. You know, the destination could have been yesterday and then today maybe we don't feel like we're there. It's this ongoing practice. So besides talking about ritual and just kind of diving into a little bit about what the Buddha said and things to kind of be warned about, just kind of thinking about that, I thought it would be good also to talk about some different things that you can include in your practice beyond sitting. Um, maybe it's things that you used to do. Maybe you've never considered that. Um, but I think that sometimes it can be elusive, this practice, and it's more than just sitting on the cushion. So I use access to insight, access to insight.org. And I told you guys this before I've read things and part of my practice is reading, is reading books. Um, longer books that I'm interested in certain topics of the Dharma. Um, but I like access to insight because it brings me to things and it cross-references. So it was really good for this. What do they say about ritual? And this stuff popped up. And a couple months ago, I went down kind of a rabbit hole. And then again yesterday, kind of preparing and revisiting this. I was like, oh, this is good. So the first thing when I looked up, and I also want to, um, this idea of practice is a spiritual practice. And the first word that I was introduced and used with friends and fellow practitioners was sadhana. You know, what's your daily sadhana? That's a, a Sanskrit word. So sadhana is, it's akin to, and sadhu is going straight to the goal. So you can see how this ritual or this daily practice, this daily routine is leading us somewhere to, for me, the end of suffering, of less suffering, the elusive enlightenment that really is available to us in each and every day. And sadha means faith and conviction. So when you kind of break those words up, it's quite beautiful. For any of you who've studied Sanskrit, and I have not, but I have been graced to be in the presence of people who do study it, and it is a beautiful language, a language 
really thick in meaning, especially when it's spoken. It's an ancient, quite revered language. And so that's kind of why I share that with you, you know, kind of the origin of that. It's akin to, it's it's leading straight to the goal. So sadhana, it translated for us, would be a spiritual practice. So when you're asked what your spiritual practice is, or you are called to reflect, um, as I often may prompt you to in my own prompting of like, what does my practice look like lately? What do I keep bringing along with me that really feeds me and guides me and leads me to a purification of sorts? And what have I tried that just doesn't? Maybe, you know, always revisiting it looking at it through clear eyes. So this spiritual practice, what does our spiritual practice look like? And it's okay if we're thinking of sitting, that's kind of collectively where people go. And it's, it's a doing too. It's, it's a doing. And it's something sometimes that you can do and then get on with the rest of your day. And as some of the practitioners that have been sitting longer, what they want to do eventually is bring that out into the day and the teachings have that. So I think the problem that this fellow Dharma friend of mine had with ritual was perhaps maybe the link the possible link of devotion. If we are devoted to something, what could potentially be the problem of being devoted to something or someone? Yes, passion. That same person, if I sat down, might have a problem with passion. But I think, again, uh, in discernment, in practice, in this practice of equanimity and balance, when you really start digging in, uh, if you're, if I'm passionate about what I'm sharing tonight, is that wrong? But there are people who, not all the time, but maybe they really get caught up in it. And I think the pitfall of that is when we get caught up in our views, you know, and, and that's why I wanted more conversation with that person who seemed to kind of close the door on the word ritual and that it's something not good in Buddhism and there's no place for that. So, ooh, you've, you've got to be careful, which I, I think is fine. But I'm constantly working with my views. And, and one of the things I'll share with you later is, you know, creating an attitude as vast as space is, is one of my mantras. And there is language, if there's time, or I'll point to where if we have a view, that's attachment. If that point, that goal that we're leading to is this, is this non-attachment, well, we've got to let go of our views, too, of this practice and allow for it all. So rules and ceremonies, when I looked it up, and it was also like sea devotion, and it said, rites don't purify the heart. Skillful actions do. Totally agree with that. Rites, so rituals, things that you do, your daily sadhana, your practice, they do not purify the heart. Only skillful actions do. 
However, if we aren't exposed to that, if we are not perhaps as curious, if our personality or our conditioning is not to explore and maybe that's not feeling safe, maybe we like knowing that rights don't lead to the purification of heart. Got it. Not going there. So that's why I'm so intrigued by this conversation, because this is what the Buddha wanted us to do, was explore this ourselves. I'm just showing craziness here to spark probably some of the things that you've already thought about, or will, or just go, I don't want to be like that. You know, it's just an example. This is a sharing So rights don't purify the heart. Skillful actions do. I totally agree with that statement. And I also agree with my sister friend who brought up a very important point. But some people, maybe earlier on, might not be able to make that distinction, that discernment. Says rituals alone cannot take one beyond aging and death. Well, that's true. And then part of me goes, ha, but the Vajrayana Buddhists, they're going to try. And it's not necessarily aging and it's not death, but it's more of the next process, the reincarnation, the, the next left. And so I think that, especially among the three main branches of Buddhism, Um, The Theravada is going to think, oh, you're talking about deities, and you're talking about mandalas, you know, these visual things that other Buddhists use and find effective. So there could be some, some scariness, some trepidation, some I just don't know, but that doesn't mean that it isn't useful. Three more. Rites and protective charms should be avoided by lay followers. Rites and protective charms should be avoided by lay followers. Anybody have an altar at home or a space where they, does anybody have perhaps a rock, a gem, anything like that, icons, anything, pictures? I got it all. I have a statue of the Buddha. I have a statue of Shiva. I have a statue of the Virgin Mary. But this is my personal altar. And my first teacher was of compassion was Jesus and the Virgin Mary. And so there is this purification and identification with that, along with a family history. And this beautiful 100-year-old that was my great-grandmother's. And so there's some other stuff with that. Rights and protective charms should be avoided to lay followers. We could spend the whole talk on this. He talks specifically about this. I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think that if you don't do something because something's not with you, if there is the whole thing behind this is attachment. And a lot of the warnings and what my dear friend didn't mention, instead of just poo-pooing rituals, did not speak and open it up. So the real thing is if you have a deity or you have a saint or you have a rock or a pitcher or a teacher, it's putting everything. They're supposed to be for inspiration. You know, you can be devoted. And any teacher and any icon that we 
that we had is not as a person, but they actually exude certain qualities, these qualities that we are aspiring to. Two more. The best protection comes not from rituals, but from generous, moral, and wise actions. The best protection comes not from rituals, but from generous, moral, and wise actions. The discernment, the balance, and the focus on action. All we have are our actions. It's not our charms. It's not our memories. It's not anything but our actions. Our karma. What we put out into the world is what we get back. And that happens collectively and that happens individually. So we see and are aware of our collective karma at this time. And then we also personally deal with our familial, our individual karma each and every day. Last one. Water ablutions cannot wash away one's past bad karma. Water ablution, so the purification. We know water as a ritual is purification. It's bathing. It's baptism. It's tears. It's cleaning ourselves. And it uh, is a sutta. The sutta is the punika and the brahman. Punika is kind of like going, Brahman, you know, why are you always going down to the water? Shivering limbs and feeling great cold. I love some of these stories because it's like, like, what are you doing that for? It's crazy. And I'm like, this is like old. Like, this is 2,500 years ago, you know, translated by Tensanara Piku in 1995. But still, it's that human nature. And the Brahmin replies, well, surely, you know, you're asking one to do skillful karma and warding off evil. Whoever, young or old, does evil karma is through water evolution from evil karma, comma, set free. And I love this. He says, who taught you this? The ignorant to the ignorant? Like, one through water ovulation from evil karma set you free? In that case, they'd all go to heaven. The frogs, the turtles, the serpents, the crocodiles, you know, and anything else that lives in the water. Goes on to the fishermen, the thieves, you know, everybody. You know, if these rivers could carry off the evil karma you've done in the past, they'd carry off your merit as well. And then you'd be completely left out. Whatever it is that you fear, you're going to go down to the water. Don't do it. Don't let the cold hurt your skin. The Brahmin responds, I've been following the miserable path, good lady, and now you've brought me back to the noble give you this robe for this water ovulation. She responds, let the robe be yours. I don't need it. If you're afraid of pain, if you dislike pain, then don't do any ill karma in open, in secret. But if you do, 
or will do any evil karma, you'll gain no freedom from pain. And even if you fly up and hurry away, if you're afraid of pain, if you dislike pain, go to the awakened ones for refuge. Go to the Dharma, go to the Sangha. You know, we have this over and over again, seeking a refuge. So while I think this is kind of hard, and part of me appreciates the ritual and the ceremony of the purification of water, they're allowing that the most skillful is in the actions, is seeking refuge in these teachings, uh, seeking refuge in one another. When someone speaks to ritual and you enjoy a good ritual and you have a ritual in your sadhana, in your daily practice, Remember this. It's in discernment. It's in equanimity. It's in being able to let go. We don't want to have to have a practice, right? If your practice has to include something, what happens when you don't get to it that day? Being able to let go of that. Uh, and that speaks to a larger practice, our larger practice. But it also speaks to this, this self-compassion that I know each and every one of us needs a bigger dose of every day. It's okay. It's okay I didn't sit for 15 minutes. I always sit for 15 or whatever it is. I wasn't as mindful when I talked to the cashier or our friend Think about all the rituals that we do that we don't even give respect to, proper mindfulness when we meet someone. Nice to meet you. What's your name? Name goes over the head. Maybe there's a handshake. There's elbow bumps. Move on. With mindfulness, you know, interacting with another human being can be quite a ritual. It can be quite something that is beautiful and intimacy. The rituals in Buddhism are bowing. And there's so much more in just giving respect, but taking the self out of it. So as we enter the meditation room, bowing, to the Buddha and we're not bowing to the man we are bowing to what this stands for the teachings so you can also look beyond your practice personally I'm really into into ritual of just how it's there's not enough of them and the ones that have been around have been kicked to the side and it's it's really important as a community as a people to be able to have rituals, to come together, to be able to grieve, to be able to celebrate our human experience and understand how different generations do that. And slowly, we've gotten rid of those. I taught in South Omaha for a a couple of decades, and I loved the idea of the quinceanera. And it was such a a big thing. It's, It's a rite of passage, you know? And I think of the rites of passage that 
You know, I grew up and had and the ones that we collectively have in a society and then kind of the side ones that our families may have um, that we hold close. But you only need, you almost need gatekeepers to keep those going to create these spaces. Benefits of a, a routine, which is kind of, we're talking, it's an elevated routine. Even the language, prayer, is ritualized speech. But again, uh, I remember, you know, still know my prayers from back in the day. And boy, I just say them so fast. I'm like, what do they even mean? And I remember at one point being older going, huh? But the routine, the ritual adds to consistency. It can be a measurement of our growth. It can signal an awareness of change. So we'll talk briefly just a little bit about the different practices that you can make into your sadhana. And um, I would also love to hear from you in a little bit, um, maybe something that wasn't named. The first one we did was taking refuge in the triple gem, the triple gem known as the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And so that is the most consistent foundational thing I think you'll hear in, in Buddhism here and from other teachers. And so you could look at your practice, your sadhana, your spiritual practice through the lens of those three gems. Like, how do I interact with the, the Buddha? And, and many times it's an aspiration. He's kind of like a, a role model. Um, and then you have the teachings. Are you... You know, getting on access to insight, you know, once a month or every day, or do you have a book? I, I have a couple of books that are daily that I'll sit down and I'll read that before I sit or before I finish. And then Sangha, are you, this is so important to be together. Are you talking to someone? Are you listening? This isn't, this is, uh, I keep saying this over and over lately, but you know, um, the, the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh said the next Buddha is Sangha. It's not one person. I have deep gratitude for each and every one of you that feel the importance of community and are open to that idea of the next Buddha being us. Raising each other up, holding each other. The five precepts. You know, we hear this when we go on retreat. So we sit down and sometimes we chant them, which is also beautiful, more ritualistic. I know here at the MOI retreats and other retreats I've done, we do that in Pali. So it adds this other level of ritual to it. Five precepts, non-harming. And because you've heard these before, most of you, I'm going to ask you to look at the lens from your own perspective. Non-harming. We are not to harm others. The flip side of that, and, and that may be looking at it different, is are you not harming yourself?
we are taught to look outward. First, we've got to take care of ourselves. That self-compassion we hear, we're starting to starting to seep in a little bit more in our language. And we're, we're going, okay, I respect that. We're creating that language together. Too much is too much. The harming, obviously not harming other people. We're doing the same for ourselves. The next one being refraining from stealing, not taking what's freely given. Most of us aren't stealing in here. Stealing, we think of cars or money. It's just like everything, you know, once you get in here, it's more than that. What's not being freely offered? Those of you that live with other people, that have favorite foods that you like too. A simple, just quick, you know, if that's not yours, if you know, if it's been made known, and there's many, many more ways of, of looking like that. We talked about the importance the Buddha did about actions. All we have are our actions. So these precepts, the sila is setting the foundation and creating. And like an example of what Patty gave. It's like, what if we do this kind of ritual of the precepts? Doesn't it lead to that? Yes, it does. The third one, sexual misconduct. It's not just shacking up with someone. There's more to it. And it's really an honesty of yourself. And we have a lot of things that we have to deal with culturally with the sexist. Old stereotypes. Bringing mindfulness to sexual misconduct and even asking yourself, what does that mean? But you have to do that to understand that. The fourth one, refraining from lying, gossip, and harsh speech. This is one of my favorites, right speech. And that's one of the components, idle chatter. Putting mindfulness towards that and understanding that we are filling the gap because we are uncomfortable with silence. Is that making it about us? Maybe that other person isn't. Maybe it's taking that movement, that wave away. It's not creating space. Harsh speech, longing. In the, in the suttas, they say, if we know it, we say it. If we don't know it, we don't say it. It's clear like that. There's no in-between. There's this honesty. And again, all we have are our actions. If we're you know, slandering someone else or putting our view, or there's so many ways that we do this. And we do it almost skillfully. You know, that's the tricky thing about this. You know, the ego wants to protect us when we're, when we're naughty like that. And awareness highlights that. There's something within us is why we're acting that way. If we're harsh on someone, it's not that person. It's us. It's something that we are dealing with. So there's the outside. And then, again, turning it into ourselves. So right speech What's the inner dialogue? Is there compassion? Is there judgment? Is there, there you go again, can't do anything right. Mindfulness will help to correct that, set us on the path. The fifth one of the five precepts is refraining from intoxicants and stimulants. 
when I was reviewing this and I'm like, and yeah, that's why every retreat center has like the coffee and they've got the tea, you know, and I'm just like, you know, again, discernment, balance, equanimity. If you're, you know, just one espresso after the other and people are just like, oh, right. If you're, or if you're doing that just to sit, you know, maybe what you need is to rest. But if you're using intoxicants and stimulants without mindfulness, without awareness and examination, you'll never know that. So bringing in the five precepts beyond uh, a retreat, Monday through Friday, I don't know, skip a day, you got two other days, I don't, whatever makes sense to you. The five remembrances, these are a favorite of mine, so I would like to share those. They're grounding. They're the reminder that we are of the nature to grow old. These are hard ones for some people. We are of the nature to grow old to have ill health. Third one's the shocker. We're of nature to die. Fourth, everything that we love and is near and dear to us is of the nature to change. Finally, <laughs> all we have are our actions. Powerful. I love those. Every day, one of those. Nobody can escape that. Chanting, reading a sutta, meditating, that's part of it, not all of it. And then lastly, I just wanted to mention the dedication merit of our practice. And we see this at the end. We dedicate the merit. There's many different ways to do that. Uh, I invite you to create your own. It's kind of like a loving kindness, but I dedicate the merit of practice to all beings, far and wide, without exception, that they may see the end of suffering, that they may experience that. And that is action. That is our karma. So we sit for five minutes. We sit for 30 minutes. We come together here. We are putting that in the pool. We are forwarding that karma. Satna, our spiritual practice. There's reverence to this. You know, a lot of the, the teachings, um, I have teachers that teach tantric-type practices, Vajrayana-type practices, and they call these secret practices. They're not secret. It's just that there's, you know, one of my teachers did breathwork practices. And he talked about doing them in his early 20s. And he was like, I did it for three days. He had no, he had not created the stability. He had not created the wisdom, the whole package to be able to, you know, delve into some of these things. Treating this with reverence and not speeding like we want to get to the end there's such a wisdom in this. And so by already exhibiting the wisdom of this reverence, with your permission, I'm going to share one more thing that I find quite beautiful. These are from Longchenpa, a 14th century Tibetan master. 
And there are five characteristics to cultivate in order to practice the Brahma Viharas, the immeasurables. So it's this idea of this space, this space to include everyone and everything and all their views and all their mistakes and all the things that are dirty and smelly and, you know, so anyway. The first one I, I've already said to you that is a guidepost for me is is creating a, a fundamental attitude as vast as space. A fundamental attitude as vast as space. So my attitude, you know, whatever's coming at me, stinky skunk, cranky person, you know, making room, this idea of space for everything to a mind as constant as the depths of the ocean. A mind as constant as the depths of the ocean. We know what the ocean is like down below. It's not that upwardy, wavy. It's still. Seeing all occurrences, inner and outer, as mist floating in the sky. It's everywhere. Seeing all occurrences, inner and outer, as mist floating, floating through the sky. We move through it. We can't grab it. We're a part of it. A compassionate attitude as even as the rays of the sunshine. A compassionate attitude as even as the rays of sunshine. Any critical thinkers might be saying, what if it's cloudy? The sun is still shining. And lastly, sensing negativities to be like specks of dust in our eyes. Sensing negativities to be like specks of dust in our eyes. And we have specks of dust right now. So it's not like, whoa. I was riding my bike home the other day and I was like, I need to remember glasses. We're not talking about that big bug. It's just a speck, it's just a speck of dust. And so I think these sort of things, right, hopefully invigorate, they kind of open up our practice, our spiritual practice to beyond sitting. They give us more to work with, especially in those days where we just have five minutes. Or we're taking one deep breath before we fall asleep on the bed. So many ways. We're at 7.29. Thank you so much for your intention, your sharing, and being here. I have deep gratitude for each and every one of you. Dedicate the merit of this practice to all those far and wide without exception. May they benefit from our Sangha and the teachings of the Buddha. Thank you for listening. We know your time is valuable, so we are grateful you choose to spend it with the MOI community. This podcast is supported by listeners like you. To make an offering, please visit us at mindfulnessoutreachinitiative.org. And tune in each week for more Dharma talks, reflections, and teachings centered in the insight meditation tradition.